Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. To those of you who have heard me, you're going to hear the same old story. It's the only one I know. It's my story. To those of you who have never heard me, it has been my privilege to have been a member of this grandest of all fellowships for a little over 23 years. If that 23 years bothers some of those of you who are newer in the program, forget it, because the 23 years was built up 24 hours at a time. Had anyone told me when I came into AA that I would have to stay sober for six months, I doubt if I would have made it. When they mentioned the 24-hour program, that made sense. So as I say, it's been built up 24 hours at a time. Now, I'm not going to tell you too much about my drinking experiences, because I believe that all alcoholics drink to excess for the same reason. That reason being that we lack the courage or the ability, or in plain language, a gut, to face reality, responsibility, and the everyday problems of life, and we use alcohol as a way out. And believing that, I believe that we are all identically the same insofar as what goes on up here. We vary only in the details. Essentially, we are the same. But in order to qualify myself for the privilege of membership in this grandest of all fellowships, I'll have to tell you that I didn't do one day's honest work for 10 years prior to April of 1940 when I was privileged to come into AA. In that 10 years, my wife divorced me. You women are awfully unreasonable. Just because I hadn't been home for three years. <laughs> I lived by my wits and other people's money. I lost a home, family, every friend I had in the world, and above all, my self-respect. I spent a couple of years in hospitals and sanitariums and cures, and a few years more in some of the better or worse jails in the country, all due to the abuse of alcohol. And I think that should qualify me for the privilege of membership in AA. But please don't get me wrong. It is not necessary for anyone ever to have lost a wife or a husband a home, a family, his self-respect, a job, or to have ever spent any time in hospitals, sanitariums, cures, or jails to be a good member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And if by the grace of God you have been spared those indignities before you come into AA, then you should be doubly grateful, because I can assure you that if you are an alcoholic, and you continue to drink, they're going to happen to you too. But some good things come out of the strangest places. 
I met my sponsor in jail. We were both doing a year in the Warrensville House of Corruption. Uh, pardon me, correction. <laughs> in Cleveland, as habitual offenders. Tommy was paroled a few days before Christmas in 1939, after he'd done about nine months. And when I knew him on the inside, he was the sourest guy in the world. He hated society, his fellow man, and himself. A few days after he was paroled, somebody got a hold of him on New Year's Eve in 1939. and put him in AA the hard way. He had no money for hospitalization, and he's been here ever since, doing a swell job. Married again, two beautiful children, has a position that's far above anything he had ever hoped for. He's a credit to society and a credit to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I hope will always be an example to me just as each and every one of us who is sincere in this fellowship is an example to some other person. And I think it therefore behooves us all at all times to so conduct ourselves that we will reflect nothing but credit on this grandest of all fellowships. At any rate, Tommy came out to the workhouse to see me and tell me the story of alcoholics and nuns. I was skeptical and suspicious of the ability of this or any other program of life to enable me to rehabilitate my life to the point where again I could be a halfway decent, honest, sober Christian gentleman. I knew, knew too much about alcoholism, or thought I did. <coughs> I'd awakened in a hospital in New York way back in 1928. Heard an intern say to a nurse, just a chronic alcohol. And that word sounded just as bad to me the first time I heard it as it did to every one of you the first time you heard it. And I made it my business when I got out of that institution to stay sober long enough to read everything I could get my hands on on the subject of alcoholism. And the sum total of everything that was printed at that time was that if you're an alcoholic, you're going to die drunk. They gave you absolutely no hope for anything. Believing what I read, I'd make everything I could get my hands on in the hope it would soon be over. But it wasn't. But I believe that explains my extreme skepticism and disbelief. I had no faith in a God, my fellow man, or myself. But when Tom came out there to see me, he had something that I wanted. He was a completely changed individual. He was happy. And I well remember sitting there and saying to myself after he left, whatever Tom Bethel's got on one, he's happy. What can he be happy about? I don't know. He hasn't got a home. He hasn't got a job. He hasn't got a suit of clothes. And he's got to borrow the money for bus fare to come out and tell me this story. I didn't know it then, ladies and gentlemen, but I think I do this afternoon. But all happiness in this world is contained right within our own hearts. It has nothing to do with anything material. At any rate, Tommy got me out of there early in April of 1940 after I had done about nine months. 
I immediately got stiff. He caught up with me in a few days and put me in Webster Sanitarium, which was then in Berea. And that was the beginning of Alcoholics Anonymous for me 23 years ago last April. I believe every male member of Alcoholics Anonymous in Cleveland at that time came out to see me. And I was frank in expressing to them my disbelief, my skepticism, my confusion. I, like a great many other alcoholics, thought I was in a special case. There was no hope for me. And I was frank in expressing that to these men. But on a Sunday morning, a chap whom I had never seen before came in, asked me how I felt about this program, and I said, well, I think it's fine for you, but I don't think it's for me. And he said to me, look, bud, are you sincere for probably the first time in your adult life and the desire to stay sober, period? Total abstinence. Well, that I could assure, assure him I was. For I had known for years that I was licked by whiskey. I tried every way under the sun to quit and nothing worked. And this man said to me, if you are sincere, you can't help but get the theories, practices, preachings, and principles of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's impossible not to get them. I had been a subject of condemnation for years by society, my family, my friends, and myself. And I had no hope for anything but to die in Potter's, uh, and die in DTs and be buried in Potter's Field. And along comes a perfect stranger and tells me that if I'm sincere, I can't miss. He gave me hope where there was no hope. And if there is nothing that I can pass on to any new person today, or to any of the rest of you who have been around for a while and are still skeptical of the ability of this program to enable you to rehabilitate your life to the point where you don't have to drink, I'd like to pass on the beautiful hope that Alcoholics Anonymous holds out to every person with no qualifications whatsoever. AEA says that if you're sincere, you can't possibly miss. And if you are skeptical and confused and suspicious like I was, hang on to that beautiful hope. And over a period of time, the whole thing will unfold itself like a rosebud and it's just as beautiful. Of course, we might look at the word sincere or sincerity for a minute. If you are an alcoholic, you were in your drinking days not sincere about anything, unless it was to get another shot or another bottle. If you are an alcoholic, you were in your drinking days, whether you like it or not. The world's champion liar. The guy that taught Ananias' business must have been an alcoholic. We lied when it was easier to tell the truth. But if by the grace of God we are privileged to be sincere when we come into this fellowship or acquire sincerity after we come in, then everything is going to be all right. You can't possibly miss. 
I remain skeptical, confused, and suspicious for many, many months in this league. I used to sit out there and listen to this person up here. Didn't have the slightest conception of what he was driving at. And I stayed sober strictly through the faith, association, and fellowship of a few good guys in this league. The end of about a year, I happened to think of a psychiatrist whom I had seen at the behest of a boss of mine in New York in 1930. That boss was the most patient individual in the world. He had me into the home office a half a dozen times and alternately begged me to quit drinking and threatened to fire me. Finally kept me there for 30 days and had a very eminent psychiatrist see me three times a week which insofar as psychiatry is concerned is only a beginning, a cursory examination. The psychiatrist and I started off even. He sat over on that side of the table and I sat over here, and we both thought I was nuts. We were both right. I thought he was a little nuts too. I still think he was a little nuts. And I lied to him all through this series of discussions like only an alcoholic can lie. And it burned me up when he wasn't believing the lies I was telling him. And that goes for every one of you out there who is an alcoholic. When that husband, that wife, that boss, or that bartender, or whoever it was, no longer believed the lies you were telling him, you knew you were slipping. When we couldn't give the people that short con anymore, we were on our way up. As I said, this man was far too smart for me, and at the end of 30 days, he said to me, you're a typical alcoholic, which I already knew. But I'll tell you how to quit drinking, but you won't do it in one case out of a thousand. Here it is. In the first place, get yourself a hobby. Well, I laughed at that one because to me a person with a hobby was some monkey out here in the park with a butterfly and that collecting bugs or blondes or brunettes or stamps or something. <coughs> in the second case, he said, don't be so selfish. And I hit the ceiling. Because like every drunk that ever lived, I thought I was the world's most unselfish person. And it wasn't until I was privileged by the grace of God to take an honest moral inventory of myself when I came into this fellowship, to look searchingly into my own heart and soul to see what made me tick, to be perfectly honest with myself, that I realized that I and every alcoholic that ever lived is in his drinking days, besides being the world's champion liar, also the world's most selfish person. We didn't care whom we hurt in order to achieve the, any end we set out to achieve. We were going to take care of our own selfish desires first, and if there was anything left, that was for somebody else. In the third case, he said, get yourself some religion. Well, I laughed that one off, because when I was a kid, I went to Sunday school. I learned there was a God, I believed it, and that was the end of it. When I came to adult stature, the person who was a decent, honest, church-going Christian was, in my estimation, a pantywaist. He needed that. I didn't. I was a master of my own destiny, or so I tried to make myself and everybody else believe. 
And again, it wasn't until I was privileged to take that moral inventory plus all the rest of them down through the years that I realized that I am not the master of my own destiny, nor is any other alcoholic, nor is any other human being. At any rate, I left that whole program of life off and six weeks later lost the best job I ever had or ever will have. I was in a hotel in Kansas City and I got a wire from the boss with just two words and it says, you're fired. And believe me, I was fired. As I told you in the beginning, I stayed fired from any honest work for 10 years. But as I said, about a year after confusion, confusion, befuddlement, skepticism, I happened to think of that psychiatrist and it dawned on me that way back in 1930, he told me some of the things that Alcoholics Anonymous was trying to teach us now. <clears throat> in the first place, get yourself a hobby. For my money, it behooves every individual, alcoholic or otherwise, to have some interest in life other than his daily home or work life. Something to take up the slack. And for those of us who are alcoholics, this is it. Make a hobby, and you'll never have any trouble. And it's a beautiful hobby. You know, we're gregarious individuals. We love people. When we felt sorry for ourselves or lonesome, we could always find a kindred spirit in a saloon or in a bottle. Well, here you meet people that speak your language, people that are your kind, and people who, if they're but trying to live the type of life that's described in that book, Alcoholics Anonymous, are people of pretty good character. Because after everything is said and done, Alcoholics Anonymous has done no more nor less for any one of us than bring out in us that inherent, decent part of our character. We're walking Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Back in our drinking days, we're wont to submerge the decent part of our character and keep uppermost the alcoholic part. And it is only by the grace of God through the medium of AA that we have been privileged to submerge that alcoholic part and keep uppermost that decent part of our character. But that alcoholic part is there, going to be there till the day we die. We've got to continue to do something about it, to keep it from becoming uppermost. Those of us who have been around for a few years have mean, seen men be, and women become complacent in one, two, five, ten, fifteen, even eighteen years. They begin to find excuses whereby they can't help their fellow men. They begin to find excuses whereby they can't come to these meetings. They begin to, begin to be complacent. And the alcoholic part becomes uppermost and they wind up drunk. Make a, a hobby and you'll never have any trouble. In the second place, uh, case, he said, don't be so selfish. We were very selfish people in that part of us. The only way we can take care of the selfish part of our nature is in an effort to help our fellow men. <laughs> this league is about 28 years old. But we haven't even scratched the surface. We haven't even begun. There are hundreds of thousands of men and women on the outside looking for a way out of the horror of alcoholism. 
And there isn't a soul in the world to whom they may turn but you and me. Where else can they turn? Down through the ages, everything has failed in helping the alcoholic and remained for those two gentlemen 28 years ago in Akron to get together and give us this way of life. And for my dough, that meeting between Wilson and Smith was spiritually ordained because I do not believe it were possible or any two ordinary human beings to get together and give us a way of life so perfectly adapted to our type of individual. Between the pages of the book Alcoholics Anonymous are all the answers for each and every one of us. Nothing superfluous, nothing omitted. It must be the aim, duty, purpose, and privilege of every one of us who has learned this way of life to carry this message to that poor unfortunate devil on the outside. And by the grace of God, help him build up his morale and his courage as ours was built up for us to the point where he too can face life with all its realities and responsibilities without resorting to alcohol or any other subterfuge. That'll take care of the selfish part of our nature. In the third case, he said, get yourself some religion. Well, I had been living in angles for years, and I didn't think it was possible for one person to do something for another without there being a payoff somewhere down the line. And I was scared to death when they told me about a spiritual phase of AA. I well remember sitting there and saying to myself, oh, oh, here it is, this is it, this is the payoff. I'm going to have to roll, sing, and shout with these monkeys on a public square every day at high noon. And had anybody told me that I would do that every day at high noon for six months, that I'd never take another drink, I would have done it. Because I was willing to do anything that anybody told me to do or asked me to do in an effort to straighten out my life to the point where I didn't have to drink. But I found out we don't have any sawdust trail. We're not out on the street corners banging tambourines and singing psalms. But just so sure as we're here today, Alcoholics Anonymous is basically spiritual and it is the most beautiful part of the program. And the most beautiful part of the spiritual phase is that it's strictly up to you as an individual. No one qualified or privileged to stand up here and tell you you have to do it in a certain way. That's up to you. But for my money, there is not, nor has there any, ever been, any such thing as a real atheist. The notorious atheists in history on their deathbed cried out for help from a god. Every civilized human being, when the going is tough, says a prayer. Ask the kids that were in the foxholes or the airplanes, or ask yourself. If you're an alcoholic, you used to say a prayer when you were getting out of a jam or off of a bender, and it used to go something like this, Oh Lord, get me out of this and I'll never take another shot. Making a deal with God Almighty. There are no deals in Alcoholics Anonymous. you got to wipe the slate clean. Wash all the linen, surrender completely and say, I'm licked and I need help. When you're able to say and mean that you have achieved the most beautiful part of any human character, humility before God. 
I was told when I came into this league that I would have to become humble before a God as I knew him. And I didn't know what they were talking about. Today I don't know much about it. But humility to me simply means this. The ability and willingness of the individual coming into this fellowship to sit down and say to himself and to his conception of a God, by myself, I made a horrible mess out of this existence up to the present time. I've tried to help myself and failed. I've tried to get help from others and failed. I've failed all the way down the line. I'm licked. And I'm sincerely, I sincerely and honestly want to need help. To me, that's humility. I've said words similar to that when I came into AA and I meant them, but I didn't believe them. But again today, I and every sincere member of this fellowship can guarantee unto anyone with no qualifications whatsoever that if you are willing humbly to ask a God as you know him for the privilege of living as a halfway decent, honest, sober Christian person, you are accorded that privilege. Don't ask me how, when, why, or what. I don't know. That's for the gentleman of the cloth. But I do know this, of ourselves we have done nothing. It has all been done for us. We should be the most humbly grateful people that ever lived. Grateful that we're living in a day and age when Alcoholics Anonymous is known. Where would you be this afternoon were it not until this afternoon that Smith and Wilson got together and gave us this way of life? I don't know where you'd be, I'd be dead. But as I said in the beginning, we were told to live 24 hours at a time. In the morning, when you arise to ask a God as you know him, for the privilege of living this day as a halfway decent, honest, sober Christian person, and having been privileged this day to live that way, to be humbly grateful to that God at night. You don't have to believe it. All any of us can tell you from up here is to try it. Say the words. Mean them. And sooner or later, you will be privileged to have man's most cherished possession complete, implicit, childlike faith in the God as you individually know him to so order your life that you won't have any alcoholic problem or any other problem. Every person, always remember, every person who comes in with a sincerity of purpose, sooner or later, winds up with that childlike faith, and it's beautiful. You know, the only reason I ever got in trouble with the law was because I had to have money to drink, and I was put uh, pretty adept at putting your names on little bits of paper, you know. Didn't make any difference what bank or what town it was. And the only time I ever got into trouble was when I got too stiff and put my own name on a check. <laughs> I was sentenced to penitentiary in Chicago, 
The charge was cut, and I got six months in the workhouse there. I was sentenced to penitentiary in Cleveland. Also, the charge was cut there, and I got six months in the workhouse. That first six months in Warrensville workhouse, I had charge of the workhouse hospital. And in that six months, there were about 5,000 men came through that line. The down-and-outers, the derelicts, the dregs of humanity, but alcoholics even as you and I. I saw 25 men dying straps, strapped down both arms and both legs, dying alcoholic convulsions or DTs, and that's not a pretty thing to watch. And any person in his right mind whoever saw one person die in alcoholic convulsions would never want to hear the word whiskey again. But I, like a typical alcoholic, used to walk away from those poor devils and say to myself, well, here's where you go in a joint like this someday. You'll be strapped down, die, be buried in Potter's Field, and nobody cares. To get away from that reality, I drank straight alcohol. When I found out there was five gallons of 192 proof alcohol in that workhouse safe one night after everybody was in bed, I cracked, cracked that crib in about three minutes. And I had all the alcoholic I needed, to, all the alcohol I needed to stay drunk every night for six months. And had all the sedatives to straighten me out the following day while the doctor was there. It was an alcoholic's paradise. I didn't care if I never got out of the workhouse. But it was through talking to thousands of these people, because I was interested in alcoholism, knowing that I also was an alcoholic, that I learned, as I told you in the beginning, that all alcoholics are identically the same insofar as what goes on up here. You know, we all thought we were pretty clever about many of the things we did, both concerning alcohol and not concerning alcohol. We thought we were pretty clever and original. Well, if any of you people out here today still think you ever did anything original insofar as drinking is concerned, you're only kidding yourself. Some drunks did it 500 years ago. There's nothing original in any one of them. And it's through talking to thousands of those men that I found out there are just four ways out for the alcohol. The first one is death, which is the most merciful. The second one is the insane asylum, which is by far the worst. And 35% of all the inmates, they tell us, of mental institutions, both public and private in this country, are alcoholics who have gone a bit beyond the pale, who have suffered brain deterioration to the point where they can't accept this or any other program of life. The third way out of the gutter. Now, part of the disease of alcoholism is a marked intelligence. Most alcoholics have a native intelligence, regardless of the amount of education we have had, we traded on that intelligence and that personality that was going to get us by anyway. It couldn't happen to me, but it did. I've been on every skid row in every big city in the country for varying lengths of time, not very long on any of them, except six months in those flea bags down on West Madison Street in Chicago. 
And on Skid Rose, I have met doctors and dentists and lawyers and CPAs and members of every trade and profession, including the clergy, both Catholic and Protestant, who are unfrocked and bumming nickels. I have met men on Skid Row who had earned upwards of $100,000 a year when a buck was worth a buck. And they didn't pay that kind of dough for dummies. But they didn't have the intelligence to beat alcohol. And there is no alcoholic living who, if he continues to drink and misses death in the nuthouse, can possibly miss Skid Row. Oh, of course, Skid Row might be a mansion if it's, if you have a million dollars, or it might be your own home if your wife or husband has got a good job. But for the average alcoholic who works for a living, it's that Skid Row right down there next to the curb. And the fourth way out is to quit drinking, period. Total abstinence. And any one of us that had a shred of a brain left knew that that was our only out. We tried every way under the sun to quit and nothing worked. When along comes an outfit like this and says, look, if you're sincere, you're in. You're one of the guys or one of the gals and you can't possibly miss. Again, shouldn't we be the most humbly grateful people that ever lived? You know, another part of the disease of alcoholism is a marked inferiority complex, which most of us didn't recognize. But all of you know the answers. Give the average alcoholic just the right number of drinks and sit him down at a bar next to a great surgeon, he'll tell him how to operate. You go across the street, sit down next to a great civil engineer and tell him how to build bridges. With just the right number of drinks in us, we speak with authority on any subject under the sun. Playing a part and acting a role. We've got to quit playing that part and acting that role and put our two feet on the ground and be just what God Almighty made it. Nothing more, nothing less. You know, a little over 23 years ago, when my sponsor put me in this league, he told me that if I ever spoke at an AA meeting, there were no souls saved after the first 35 minutes. And I believe him, and I've gone over 35 minutes quite a bit. Of course, like all drunks, I could stand here and talk to you all day. We used to do that in the early days. We never bothered when people looked like, did like that, but when they went like that to see if they were running while we got the idea. It has been a great privilege and a great pleasure and a great honor for me to be here with you today to help you celebrate this 10th Tri-State Assembly anniversary, or whatever it is. And in conclusion, I can tell you in a very few words how I feel about this league. If it was necessary for me to have gone through all the headaches and the heartaches that I did, to have suffered the loss of a home, family, every friend I had in the world, and above all, my self-respect, 
to have spent years in hospitals and sanitariums and cures, and years more in jails, if all of those things were necessary for me to have learned this way of life, then thank God I'm an alcoholic. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.